If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot has <laughs> happened this week. Ow. Tonight, our theme is Brace for Impact. What does the Trump victory mean and where do we go from here? And so we have a number of people on tonight that will help us hopefully answer that question. First of all, we have Michelangelo Signorelli, who is a well-known LGBT activist, the host of the Michelangelo Signorelli show on Sirius Radio, and the author of It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. And live in studio, we'll have Tara Russell-Slavin, who is the Deputy Director of Policy and Community Building at the lovely Los Angeles LGBT Center. And finally, we've got Karen Oakham, who is a longtime friend of IMRU you and one of the old style great beat reporters on our issues in LA. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Frances O'Brien. And I'm John Dyer V. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending November 12th, 2016. A committee in Mexico's lower house of Congress has rejected a bill proposed by President Enrique Peña Nieto to constitutionally create civil marriage equality. This week's vote in the Commission on Constitutional Matters was 19 to 8, with one abstention. Marriage equality has been formally legalized in Mexico City and 10 of Mexico's 31 states. The country's Supreme Court ruled last year that it was unconstitutional to deny civil marriage to same-gender couples and urged lawmakers in the remaining states to remedy this situation. But unlike high court rulings in some other countries, the decision didn't automatically open the institution to gay and lesbian couples across the country. Individual couples in jurisdictions without marriage equality must still sue in each case for the right to wed. The president's political party suffered major losses in June's midterm elections, and congressional leaders were reluctant to even address the issue. The very idea of opening civil marriage to lesbian and gay couples in heavily Roman Catholic Mexico has fueled large marches in opposition. But it's also led to the creation of new LGBT rights groups across the country and equally large marches in support of equality. Congressman Guadalupe Acosta Naranjo of the leftist Democratic Revolution Party lamented the lost legislative opportunity. The rights of minorities are not put to a vote, he said. They are expanded and recognized, and it is Congress that should protect them. But excited lesbian and gay couples in Taiwan 
are closely following developments in their Congress, the legislative yuan that could make the island state the first in Asia with marriage equality. President Tsai Ing-wen of the governing Democratic Progressive Party has been a vocal supporter. Legislation filed by her party in October would change the definition of civil marriage to a union of two people rather than of a man and woman. It would also allow married same-gender couples to adopt children. The bill passed its first reading this week, but that only signaled its formal introduction, after which it was sent to the legislature's Judiciary and Organic Laws and Statutes Committee for consideration. Second and third readings are required for final passage. No timetable has been announced for that process. A marriage equality bill cleared its first reading in 2013, but failed to advance. A record-breaking crowd of more than 80,000 people lobbied for civil marriage equality at Taipei's annual LGBT Pride Parade in late October. But Western-inspired fundamentalist church groups, like the Alliance of Religious Groups for the Love of Families Taiwan, have already staged street protests and vowed to do whatever they can to block any change to the status quo. Elsewhere, a government spokesperson for Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada announced this week that the agency would be changing its rules governing foreign visitors to allow them to identify themselves on border documents as male, female, or other. It's expected that such an option will soon be available on Canadian passports. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said in early July that his government was exploring the use of gender-neutral alternatives on federal identity cards, a human rights issue raised repeatedly by transgender Canadians and their allies. Canada joins Australia, New Zealand, Nepal, and a few other countries to offer an option other than male or female on travel documents and other government forms. In a related Canadian immigration story, the agency's website continually crashed from an overwhelming surge in hits from the U.S. on the evening of November 8th as the election of Donald Trump as the nation's 45th president became more apparent. Meanwhile, Another U.S. district court has ruled that federal civil rights laws banning workplace bias based on sex also protect LGBT employees. Pittsburgh-based U.S. District Court Judge Kathy Bassoon rejected the request for dismissal of the case by the defendant in a workplace discrimination lawsuit brought by the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, on behalf of Dale Baxley. The suit charges that Scott Medical Health Center of Pittsburgh created a sexually hostile work environment around Baxley because he's gay. That someone can be subjected to a barrage of insults, humiliation, hostility, and or changes to the terms and conditions of their employment based upon nothing more than the aggressor's view of what it means to be a man or a woman is exactly the evil Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was designed to eradicate, she wrote. There is no more obvious form of sex stereotyping than making a determination that a person should conform to heterosexuality. A three-judge panel of the Chicago-based 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals held in a related case that only the Supreme Court or lawmakers could provide legal protections for LGBT people at work. The full court, with the urging of the EEOC and others, agreed to reconsider that decision on November 30th. And finally, the city of Orlando, Florida, will buy Pulse Nightclub and convert the site into a memorial. Mayor Buddy Dyer made the announcement this week just ahead of Orlando's annual weekend LGBT Pride celebration. 
49 LGBT people and their friends were killed, and 53 people were injured at the Pulse's Latino Night on June 12th by a possibly self-hating Muslim gay man. It was the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. That's News Wrap for the week ending November 12th, 2016, produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Frances O'Brien. And I'm John Dyer V. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Michelangelo Signorelli is a well-known activist, a serious radio show host, and author of the painfully timely titled book, It's Not Over, <laughs> Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. And he joins us by phone from New York City. Mike, are you there? Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. I was looking at all the very specific policy questions I had to ask you, and then all I could really come up with as an opening question was, how do we keep our heads from exploding? <laughs> I think that grieving, which I think a lot of people have been doing, is very important. But I think it's time to really pull out of that and get fired up and really fight. And I think that keeps you going. I think that keeps you focused and and realizing that there's another day. I think a lot of us do feel that way. Okay, I'm going to do something, but we're so used to doing things from the privacy of our telephones and computer terminals that we're kind of at a loss for what would actually be the best use of our energies. What are your thoughts about that? I think the protests have been amazing. I mean, for a time in which, as you just said, people are so used to being online and and doing activism there, to see these numbers of people in the streets across the country uh, has really been invigorating. And I think it's important for people to get out and, and do it. And it's not contesting the election or saying it was rigged or anything like that. It's people saying, this was not a normal election. It was a hate campaign. We cannot tolerate that. And we're letting you know, we're putting you on notice that if you move forward with any of these policies, we are going to mobilize. I think it's so important that uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans know that people will mobilize very quickly and that we will be a force. And I hope what comes out of the protests is also a movement uh, that goes into politics uh, that that really, you know, creates candidates and and uh, really helps to challenge the Republican Party in the way the Tea Party uh, did with President Obama, although they were kind of an astroturf created movement. <laughs> uh, this is a real movement of people on the streets. And I think uh, it really can become something big. Uh, Mike, this is Wenzel. Um, how how long, though, doesn't doesn't the people on the streets thing have a, a certain lifespan? I mean, you can't flood the streets with protesting people every other week, can you? Can you? Well, I think I think you might have to. It really depends on what we see moving forward. People probably will, uh, I hope, uh, start getting together. And I've, I've been reading some uh, accounts of getting together and sort of trying to create something else out of this movement that's grown on the streets that, as I said, is more political. But I think once they see something, like, for instance, the naming of Bannon, 
uh, mm. Steve Bannon as a White House aide, or if we see any movement on uh, immigration or LGBT rights or anything that is detrimental, I think people really need to be able to uh, get back in the streets again. I think it really does show a force. Is it me, or are we seeing, perhaps a little late in the game, this concept of intersectionality that has kind of existed in very political circles and in academia kind of coming to fruition, like people are seeing that it kind of doesn't matter what your personal issue is. Um, We're sort of all in it together. Am I being kind of naive and optimistic about that? No, I think that's true. I I hate to say that Donald Trump (laughs) unified us in that way. Whatever it takes. (laughs) But it certainly is true because I think we all were uh, challenged to think about how others were experiencing things, how women were experiencing things, how immigrants were experiencing this hate. It, It just everybody was challenged to think about it and to think about people for whom it does intersect in that way, uh, and and for whom, you know, they are threatened in a variety of ways. And I, I think now that we see the hate that is being generated, we see that the hate is also equal opportunity. Um, LGBT people are being attacked on the streets. Uh, you know, even though Donald Trump didn't make such hateful pronouncements, uh, the people who are attacking uh, Latinos and African Americans and yelling white power. They're attacking uh, queer people as well. You know, I, I'm just wondering, though, because I happen to be related to a lot of them, don't you think, <laughs> uh, by the same token, that, that Trump being in office gives those um, straight white men with money, it just says, it's okay. It's okay now. You don't have you don't have to feel oppressed about being racist. You don't have to feel oppressed about being called homophobic. You don't have to feel oppressed anymore because you won. Yay, you! Because I get a lot of that from. Yeah, mm, I, I think so. I, I think that I, I I definitely think so. I think that's what's dangerous about this, and why again it's important to take a stand and to speak out and not let it go unchecked because it he has given permission for people to engage in that hate. And he's not speaking out against it. He's not um, out there saying anything. It took you know him to be asked on 60 Minutes uh, in a very sort of, you know, um, just a, a, a completely softball kind of question. And then he said, oh, yeah, just stop it. Uh, he's not really speaking out against it. He's giving people permission to do it. There's no question about it. Yeah, and meanwhile, like you said, he's appointing people like Steve Bannon and uh, Ken Blackwell to his transition team. Um, you talked a little bit about this movement going into politics, and today you talked. You wrote an article for HuffPost about saying that LGBTQ rights are already under assault. It's happening now. We've seen this. Um, how... Do we, I mean, we got here somehow. All of the progress that we've made somehow or another, here we are in this unthinkable situation. It seems that when people who supported him talk about it, they are speaking a completely different language, and they really don't get what we are talking about, no matter how clear we try to make it. You've been in the trenches for a long time. How do you think we bridge this divide? Do we just keep repeating our truth, or do do we change our message? No, we need to keep repeating it, and we need to hijack the media. And I think we have more tools now to do that. We have not just protest in the streets, 
we have social media, we have other ways to do it. Today, I think the media was under assault early on. They, they were first reporting how Reince Priebus was the chief of staff and it was an insider. They weren't saying anything about that. And, <laughs> and yeah. People just really erupted everywhere and it shifted the whole media discussion. So we have to do the same thing about LGBT rights as well. Donald Trump puts on a show and the show he's putting on about LGBT rights has been that he says the words, he said the term LGBTQ, he even said on 60 Minutes, oh, marriage is settled. Of course, it's as settled as any of the judges he puts on the Supreme Court think it is, and every one of them is an extremist <laughs> that mm-hmm. will, uh, he believes, overturn Roe v. Wade, so I don't know how they wouldn't overturn marriage. He's trying to put out this idea that he is somehow somewhat pro-LGBT. We have to dismantle that. Mike Pence is set to be the most powerful vice president in history, uh, and that's according to what Donald Trump's campaign has said throughout, and now he's running the transition team, and as you mentioned, stacking the transition team on domestic policy issues with uh, anti-LGBT activists. And, you know, it's all the little things. People should forget marriage equality. It's like a trap that people get stuck in. It would take years on putting two people on the Supreme Court to overturn marriage equality. But in the meantime, they can make um, same-sex marriage a second-class kind of marriage. They can pass the First Amendment Defense Act, which allows Mm -hmm. for clerks like Kim Davis to turn away gay couples. Just like what's happened to the abortion rights since Roe v. Wade. That's right. That's right. And it's all the other stuff that the Obama administration has put in place throughout all the agencies, anti-bullying programs in schools that are funded by the federal government, health programs for LGBT people funded by the federal government, advocacy programs, the transgender student directive to the school. Mike Pence already said that was going to be dismantled, that they would defer to the states. The federal government shouldn't be telling the schools what to do. All of those agencies, Health and Human Services Department, Education Department, so many programs will be defunded. There's just no question that while Donald Trump still goes on talk shows and says LGBTQ. So we have to focus in on that and and expose that scam. Mike, what what words of inspiration would you have for people like, oh, me, who is somewhat older, and I just, I look ahead, and I think this is going to be like the Bush years, where every single day I woke up, picked up a paper, thought, no, this can't be happening. It's like, I don't have the energy. I mean, but I can't allow myself that luxury. Inspire me. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Wake up, Wenzel. Uh, you know, as I, as I... As I wrote in my book, it's not over. And as the title says, right, it's not over is kind of a sense of you have to live in the world of it's not over. Civil rights activists have had to live in that world. African-Americans have had to live in that world since slavery. Uh, There are people who have struggled far more than we have. It's never really over because you're always defending rights when you're a minority or a marginalized group like women. You have to constantly live in the fight and you have to constantly be uh, on guard. And as I say, and it's not over, guard against victory blindness. There's this idea that 
someday it's all done. One day it's all done. You win these set of rights and it's all finished. And the moment that happens, it's gone. So wow. I think you have to just reconfigure your, your life to live in the fight. Mike, thanks so much for that. You couldn't have found a better note and more honest note to um, end our conversation on. Please talk to us again. Let's touch base with you later on. And good luck with all the great stuff you're doing. And I'll do what you said. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for all the work you're doing, too. Thank thanks. You. Oh, wow. Um, I'm struck by the idea that... There's always been a fight. There will always be a fight. And if we think the fight ends, then we're lost. Um, This is what people who've been activists for years have been trying to say. And sometimes it's easy to forget. I was just being self-indulgent. I admit it. But good question. (laughs) Well, Tara Russell Slavin is the deputy director of policy and community building for the Los Angeles LGBT Center, a place that actually holds a very important role in my coming out way back in 1984 when it was at a different location. And she sits before us here in our very studio. So welcome, Tara. Thank you for having me. Before the show started, we were talking about the fact that you had a party at the center to watch the returns. And I am sure that the energy going into that party is quite a bit different than the energy at the end of the night. Tell us a little bit about what you experienced there. Yeah. Well, it's been quite the six days, and I remember waking up on Tuesday morning, I think like a lot of people, um, really hopeful and thinking that I was about to have my first woman president. That was generally the sense in the room when we got there. There were several hundred people who showed up for the uh, election party, and as the results started rolling in, um, it was slow. I think there was still, oh, no, no, it's going to shift, and then as the night kept going on, I think uh, concern then set into panic and then to fear. And it was quite intense. Who was there? Lots of community members, lots of people from different social services organizations, people of all ages uh, were there to really, I think, take in the results. And ultimately, I think they were planning on celebrating. Uh, Who wasn't? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, And that's not unfortunately what happened. And the next night, sort of impromptu, we actually called together an event for people to sort of be able to process and talk about the results. And we had about 300, maybe more people show up for that event as well, who were really afraid and really scared about what happens now. Was that afraid from a personal standpoint of their experiences as LGBT people moving forward or about what to do politically, how to speak up or all the above? I mean, I think all the above. I think there's people who are worried personally about their family members who they may be deported or who are worried that their family isn't going to be protected when they cross state lines. And then I think Uh, Just generally in the world and funding all sorts of service provisions, how will those be impacted by this administration, I think are all real concerns. All the stuff that Michelangelo was just talking about, all the things that can be undone very quickly by this administration if they want to. Um, Talking a little bit about safety, we've heard a lot in social media about people, sort of this election emboldening people to be homophobic and hate crimes on the rise. You guys are at kind of ground zero for Los Angeles area about the calls that are coming in and the experiences people are having. What are you hearing? Well, I think our community is concerned and there is a lot of fear and we are getting calls for a lot of different issues from hate crime calls, calls about legal assistance to just kind of calls around mental health 
and being triggered by, um, you know, that the fear uh, having the uh, president who may roll back protections that people have fought really hard for. So I think the real key there is that people should know that there are services, there are assistance, there's services at the Los Angeles LGBT Center and other places. So if people are experiencing suicidality, particularly among our youth, thinking about the Trevor Project, thinking about the mental health services that we offer, but just knowing that people aren't alone I think one thing about this election and about the rhetoric has been that people feel isolated or and are afraid. I was hearing stories about people being afraid literally to walk down the street. And so I think that's where as a community we really need to come together and offer that support. Do you think for the next, I don't know, <clears throat> month, year, lifetime, there's just going to be a regular meeting uh, at the center about, you know, just processing Trump? Well, I I mean, I'm sure probably there will be – we will be preparing to respond to what are going to be the policy implications. So we already meet regularly to talk about policy. And so now we have to focus on how do we ensure that the progress we made is not rolled back. And so to that extent, I think yes. And then – but I also think it's both how are we making sure the progress doesn't roll back for us, but also around this intersectional issue is how are we making sure that we are standing – uh, in alliance and as allies across other issues, because immigration issues are our issues. And so really looking at the kind of broader picture of social justice in this country. And your work, you've been working on immigration issues, among other policy issues, um, in your position since before the, the election six days ago. Absolutely. What is your biggest concern for the people that you meet and talk to? Um, So I think one of our biggest concerns right now is that immigration is largely under the federal government's purview, almost entirely. And given what he said he's going to do and the sort of fear of deportation is we have to be prepared for how are we going to assist our immigrant community, whether it's asylum issues, whether it's people who applied for DACA, whether it's people who need to um, deferred action for childhood arrivals. Thanks. Dreamers. Yes, dreamers. Nearly 1.5 million people applied for DACA status. And then there's just people who need to are here on different immigration, uh, who may be on non-immigrant visas, Uh, people who maybe need to, who are marrying, uh, people uh, who might be eligible for legal permanent resident status. But how do we ensure and try to make sure we're looking out and trying to provide the resources and the assistance needed to get people in the safest place they can be? Queer people are, of course, everywhere and in every group. How do the immigration issues, though, particularly affect some LGBT people? What is unique about our community with regard to immigration? I think asylum is one issue. Uh, Mm -hmm. that comes up. A lot of issues are overlapping, and particularly as a result of same-sex and LGBT marriage, uh, that used to be a particular barrier. But I do think that for people who uh, may be fleeing countries in which they're persecuted, does the U.S., is it going to look as safe, right? Mm -hmm. I think that will be a real question. There's also already massive backlogs, and so that's going to be a challenge as this system, you know, there's potential cuts, there's all these enforcement issues. Uh, So those are real concerns, I think, going forward. Well, now, recently, Trump sort of walked back the number of immigrants that he's just going to get out there and and deport. But I mean, if it does get to the point where they're doing sweeps across cities, I mean, is there any sort of, is there anything set up to, like, the Gay and Lesbian Center could offer 
like an old church sanctuary? Like if they could get there, they couldn't be touched? Is that something that's even being considered? Uh, there are a lot of people who are working on this issue, and I think well, there will be a lot of conversations to be had about how it is going to be addressed. I don't think we know the answer yet. I mean, I think this is happening quickly, and um, those are conversations to be had in the future. Do you guys have uh, resources if people have questions about what's going to happen over the next couple of months? Are you set up to take those calls, or do you have referrals to people who are set up to take those calls? So we're in the we are. Um, I think if people have individual questions, legal questions, we have a legal department that can be called. We have a website www.lalgbtcenter.org that you can go on for resources uh, for numbers to all the different departments. I think you'll be seeing different fact sheets and information to come out. And then also, um, if we don't have the answer, we can try to figure out linkage to the answer. So from your position in the middle of Los Angeles and working with our communities here, what do you think we ought to be doing to get through this? Who should we be talking to? How should we be protesting? What should we be doing with our energies? Those are great questions. I feel like what we have to be doing is a combination of uh, making our voices heard, and I think that takes lots of different forms. I think people have been in the streets. I think we need to be calling our legislators. I think we need to be staying on our local government officials. We need to be getting out efforts to vote. And we have to be thinking both locally and nationally. Those are all going to be long-term steps. And also, how can we have conversations with people who maybe we weren't having conversations with, who voted for Trump, and who may not realize that policies, and it's not really about candidates, but it's about policies um, and what those policies impact and how they impact us and starting to do more of that work. I think that's a really good point because so for so many years now, I think a lot of people who aren't in the community think that marriage is it. And marriage may be immigration issues, possibly. But when I wasn't married, marriage wasn't my issue, but I was dealing with discrimination yeah. issues and everything else. Um, is it really just a question of people don't get it? I think that's absolutely a part of it. And I think, uh, you know, there it's it, there's so many issues, right? There's the discrimination. There's the bullying. There's school harassment. There's the lack of LGBT curriculum. And looking at, you know, what are the conversations around resiliency, what we have accomplished. So just big picture, there's so many aspects that make up our community that we both have to do more around and also that we've achieved. And so, again, this next period is really going to be about safeguarding and building and it seems to me that the, the trans community seems like the most vulnerable of all because it's going through this cultural period where everybody thinks, oh, they're everywhere. But we're also going through a, a reblooming of street thuggery. And I just – it seems like they're in the most danger of anybody. Coming out of the closet has, has actually made people right, very, right, right. very vulnerable. Right, right. And now you see yeah. a trans person walking down the street. It's, it seems like it's okay to go pick on them. Are they going to beef up trans services at the LGBT center or just wait and see? Well, we offer a lot of services. Yeah. So I think part yeah. of it is getting the information out there. Right. We know that I think we just had our 23rd homicide of a trans um, of the trans community this year. Yeah. And so hate crimes, violence generally, lack of employment options, discrimination are really um, important issues that we have to be doing more about. And I think that, you know, in terms of policy, 
particularly federal policies, so access to passports, um, access to social security card information, those sorts of things are issues that we're encouraging people to look at what, you know, where they are in their process and is there ways to sort of move forward on certain issues that may become more challenging to obtain in the future. Can we have the website again and other ways to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, www.lalgbtcenter.org. Tara Russell-Slavin, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for reminding us that California also has work to do. A lot of people think that everything's perfect here, but no, as we've all just said today, we got to keep moving forward. So still to come, we talk to award-winning LGBT journalist Karen Oakham, live in studio. So don't go away. We'll be right back. The birth of the Gay Pride March, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On November 2nd, 1969, in Philadelphia, the Eastern Regional Conference of Homophile Organizations made a resolution that sparked the creation of gay pride celebrations. In part, it read, We propose that a demonstration be held annually on the last Saturday in June in New York City to commemorate the 1969 spontaneous demonstrations on Christopher Street, and this demonstration be called Christopher Street Liberation Day. No dress or age regulations shall be made for this demonstration. We also propose that we contact homophile organizations throughout the country and suggest that they hold parallel demonstrations on that day. We propose a nationwide show of support. Thus was born the Gay Pride Parade as we know it. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. We have one very smart woman with us, our old friend Karen Oakham, who is an award-winning Los Angeles area journalist. You've been covering LGBT issues for so long. And as you listen to our two previous guests, what came to mind? Oh, so many things. First of all, thank you for having me. And before I say anything, I, I really want to send condolences to Gwen Ifill's family yeah. uh, and friends. Uh, she was a, a black woman journalist who was a model for integrity. And, you know, we need that, especially these days. So Speaking truth to power and doing it with great intelligence and heart. Yeah, so... Um, okay, so, <laughs> so so just name one thing. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, there were so many things. Um, what struck me... The most, because I've talked to Michelangelo about this, uh, was his comments about victory blindness. And, uh, you know, you have to, um, what he said was, we have to live in the world of it's not over and live in the fight. Mm-hmm. And he talked about it in in the context of an ongoing civil rights struggle. So what came to my mind was um, keep your eye on the prize Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's been true for the African-American struggle, for the Latino struggle, uh, on and on and on. And it's true for us as well. Um, The other thing in that same context, because I, like so many other people, you know, had this sucker punch you know I was so stunned and surprised because I expected one outcome and we wound up with Donald Trump I know how the hell did that happen so you know as with so many other people I mean I found myself 
I mean, pointing fingers. I mean, mind you, I'm a reporter, so I pointed fingers in my own mind rather than on, on paper or online. But, you know, it's like, how do we deal with this? And I'm in recovery. So um, if there's my particular experience is is that, you know, trying to get off of the high, you know, um, was very, very difficult. And there were, you know, we have this this phrase in the program that's called, you know, trudging the road of happy destiny. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a lot of stumbling blocks. There are a lot of pitfalls. There, It is a trudging, it is a hard road to trudge. But you don't have to do it alone. And you do it with other people and there's support. But there's this kind of, you know, it's along the same lines of what... Uh, Michelangelo was talking about, you know, that we have to live in this fight. So I took it because constantly fighting is just, you know, so exhausting. It's wearing. It, it is. And that was a point that you brought up. Um, and I'm old and tired. And me too. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, I'm not. I mean, no. I, I still, I, I'm pretty feisty, though. <laughs> I still have my sneakers. But one of the things that I kind of shifted about, because, you know, I, I reported on and lived through the AIDS crisis as well. How did we do that? And a lot of us still have PTSD around that. And I don't think that it's too far afield to say that, you know, that has kicked up for a lot of us. So how do we keep going, you know, especially in anticipation of all the all the hard work, all the achievements that we've accomplished being sort of swept away right. uh, with this, you know, Republican electoral sweep that's happened. So... For me, I've been trying to move it in, you know, sort of the personal as political, to look at it as a fight, but sort of try to, for my own self-care, to try to move it into a way of understanding it in in a world and a realm that I can live with. And I have I have hit bottom. I have I have had some incredibly dire experiences where I'm a suicide survivor. You know, where I've come to that brink at times and I said, you know, I don't want to live in a world like this. And I've had to reckon with that. And the truth of the matter is I do want to live. So what do I do now? Well, I mean, because I've heard other people refer to this. They say it waking up or going to sleep Tuesday night. it, It felt like a death in the family. And I'm thinking, I've had family members die, and you're prepared for that. It's a natural process, and you get over this. There's some rules for how to deal with that yeah, in a weird way. Yeah, this is like way. every single day you're going to be reminded. It happened. Well, but but the thing is, is that at a certain point in your trudging along mm-hmm. with other people to catch you when you fall, mm-hmm. and of course that requires also reaching out and asking for help, yes. which so many of us do not like doing, <laughs> but... but you know, think about actually how far we have come. I mean, you know, in the 50s where, you know, so many of these religious right people want to take us back to that's make America great again. That's what they're thinking. It wasn't that great. I was there. Well, but, you know, we had lobotomies, mm-hmm. you know, uh, incarceration. I mean, that's what Stonewall was all about. Yeah. I mean, so we have come so far. So we have to you know, sort of grab that word pride 
and reconfigure it and wear it like a rainbow color coat again and, you know, have our heads up. And even if we trip and fall and trudge along, you know, nonetheless, we have achieved a lot. We've walked a lot. We've got a lot farther to go. But, you know, I don't want to see us kind of stuck And, you know, when when he was talking about victory of blindness, yes, that happened. And now it's over. And now we need to say, okay, that was true. That happened. Now what? And what the now what is, is that we have to rethink everything. The Democratic Party is rethinking everything right now. And I want to I want to ask you about that in just a moment. But I, I want to stay on this just for another minute. I have family. I have good friends. I have people I care about and love, intelligent people who see things very differently than I do. And if they were listening to this, I don't think they are, but they might be. I think that they're thinking quietly, oh my God, these people are whining. Get over it. Really? Is it so bad? I mean, come on, you're sitting there, you're live, you've got, you know, a car that works, you know, all those things. How do we get through to them? Or do we not even try? Do we just keep moving forward and hoping they come along eventually? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that initially we need to understand that our initial reaction is, you know, kind of a middle finger to a lot of these people and say, you don't understand me. Why should I bother understanding you? But that's not the America that we want to see. And, you know, we do need to move forward. I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, and the way um, I have sort of translated it for me as kind of in a harm reduction model, you know, uh, in, in HIV, you know, you, you meet people where they are, and then you try to, you know, sort of have mutual respect for each other right where you are. In this instance, my harm reduction model, my lowest common denominator, my base a start is uh, Maya Angelou's uh, poem uh, at the Clinton inauguration where she talked about just saying good morning mm. to the neighbor. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a simple place to start instead of, you know, coming on. Kindness doesn't mean not fighting. Well, that's exactly right. And, not, and nor having an agenda. You yeah. know, you can say out of the kindness, if we are a movement about love, you know, saying good morning uh, without the disrespect, without the hatred, is is kind of disarming in some ways. <laughs> I heard a wonderful story of somebody who had had a Hillary Clinton bumper sticker on the back of her car and was at a drive-through at a Chick-fil-A of all places, and saw the mother and child probably in the back in the car behind them pointing at the bumper sticker, laughing and taking a picture of it. What she did was offered to pay for their meal, like get paid ahead of time for the meal of the car behind them. And I thought, okay, that takes some guts. Instead of being angry, that is, that is, you know, sneaky kindness. Well, that's right. I mean, we have to rethink, you know, uh, where we are and, and how to move forward. I mean, um, I think it was Michelangelo who was talking about um, having candidates run for office. I think that's absolutely important, and especially at the local level. But now the candidate training needs to include how do you deal with a candidate like a Donald Trump? Because that's become the new model of opposition. 
you know, all those old rules about... So what do we, what are the lessons? Because we did something, and I say we, meaning people on the left, and I know we're not a monolithic community. Um, we had Log Cabin here last week. But those of us who are very scared right now, um, what did we do wrong? And what do we need to not do again? Well, first of all, I, I don't know that we did anything wrong, <laughs> to tell you the yeah. truth. We didn't. We're simply asking for our equality. I mean, you know, hello, <laughs> you know, may I be a first-class Awfully citizen? Awfully presumptuous of you. <laughs> yeah. um, there are, you know, there are a number of things to, to think about, in particular, of course, as you know, uh, talking to people in so-called flyover country. Well, we don't need to go very far to to have that discussion. Oh no, we live in Los Angeles. I mean, there are there's income inequality all over the place, and not only that, but I mean, just look at HIV/AIDS, for instance. That was not an issue that was raised during the campaign at all, and yet uh, young uh, gay and bisexual. Uh, men of color, black and Latino men in particular, continue to have these rising rates of infection, and nobody's talking about it. What are they, throwaways? No, they are not. You know, just as, uh, you know, you were talking about hate crimes and and the incredible uh, number of killings of transgender women, primarily women. Uh, you know, this is this is ridiculous. Whatever happened to our humanity? Yeah. That's what I mean about just saying good morning as a starting place to try to, you know, bring back to reclaim civility, reclaim decency, reclaim our humanity. Are the Democrats politically still the party that can do this to take it to a political realm? aside from just the social interaction in our own neighborhoods? Or are there too many problems there? Well, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I can say there are a slew of problems with the Democratic Party. There are a slew of problems with the Republicans, and yeah. they need to step up. And I do— uh, Is it about party? Well, <clears throat> here's the thing. There's this, you know, thesis, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. I mean, that's the way our government's operated. You have an argument, you have a counterargument, and then you work something out to get something new and move forward. Uh, call it compromise, call it whatever you want. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, moving forward. Um, I think the Republican Party needs to find its soul and what the hell they stand for. Uh, I don't dismiss Republicans. You know, they're good people with different policy positions than than I may hold. Democrats, uh, you know, forgot, you know, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. That seems to be the bottom line of, of what happened there. As far as the third parties are concerned, um, you know, I, I'm all for third parties, but at, at a certain point when you have a— Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. I mean, even William Weld was trying to say this. Uh, you know, you have the Ralph Nader effect. And then as we see, we've, you know, we had the Bradley effect, which is, you know, people not telling pollsters what they really thought or how they're going to vote. And then all of a sudden, all these people show I mean, the up. The Trump people said that that was going on. And yeah. I was one of those people who didn't believe them. Well, they called themselves the silent majority for a reason. And they were. Yeah. Um, so we were saying you were saying earlier about how government, uh, you know, you have an argument and a counterargument and compromise. And t 
to me, that's the most frightening part of looking at the next four years because there is no, there's nobody to say, no matter how blindingly bad and horrible an idea is, there's nobody to say no. Well, I this is going to be an interesting thing because already Paul Ryan mm-hmm. uh, has said we are not going to have a deportation force. Mm-hmm. We are not going to do what Donald Trump said on 60 mm-hmm. Minutes he wanted to do. So Donald Trump has no electoral yeah. experience. But, I mean, didn't he also say he was going to gut Medicare well, at the first opportunity? So it's like... Actually, I think he wants to protect Medicare. I oh, think oh, it's oh, a oh. throw free- attack, and you'll either hit the Republican Party <laughs> platform, something he said, or something one of his surrogates said. It will never line up. Well, at, at some point, there's going to be a reckoning within the Republican Party because mm-hmm. Donald Trump, as a number of people have pointed out, have all, has all the signs of an autocrat. Mm-hmm. You know, he's narcissistic and he's used to getting his own way. And Steve Bannon is certainly going to try to make sure that that happens. And if the Republican Congress, because they now own both houses, mm-hmm. uh, if they don't go along with what Donald Trump wants, you know, Bannon's going to get his Breitbart, uh, Breitbart news and get the whole alt-right and the whole media up against individual uh, Republicans in Congress to twist their arm and get, you know, uh, outpouring from their individual districts so their careers are on the line. Donald Trump has made it very clear that he likes revenge. Mm-hmm. And he goes, he, if you like me, I'll like you. If you don't like me, I'm going to do everything. I, I will destroy you. Yeah. You know, and... So I think that we're about to see some of that play out, and that's going to be very interesting not only for the Republican Party, but also for the people who expect the swamp to be contained. And, you know, yeah. he's hiring all these lobbyists and the very people. Well, they know, know. where the swamp is. Right. Know. You know, they're, they're the ones who redistricted <laughs> the, the swamp. So, of course, they know uh, all of that. But, you know, so there is going to be a reckoning. The, the issue for the Democrats is that when there is a reckoning, there needs to be somebody, some group like the Democrats um, or whomever to stand in the breach and say, hello, I've got some ideas. Why don't we try this? Mm-hmm. I mean, two years, in two years, we're going to have the midterm elections. And I mean, you know, and then two years after that, we're going to have another census and another opportunity to redistrict. Well, there seems to be a long and noble tradition of always changing the Congress at the midterm, which was a pain when it was a Democrat in office. I would always wonder, why are you people doing that? But But that's a tradition, and we've seen all the traditions thrown out. By the wayside. Yeah, so we cannot count on that. Oh, I I count on nothing, but it's something to hope for. Well, but it's something to work for. Politically speaking... You know, I look at the issues that face uh, blue-collar, working-class, white Americans and the issues facing blue-collar, working-class people of color in this country. And to my eye, the issues aren't that different. That's right. They are about jobs. They are about paying for your family, keeping a roof over your head. Um, Of course, and I think these groups have been separated from each other very effectively to keep policy from actually making a change and keeping people in power. How do we 
politically speaking, and I know we have the good morning thing, but how do we actually start bridging that sort of unnecessary division? You know, addressing well, racism in the white working class community because they're actually stronger if we come together. I think that you need to address economics and then and then you address racism and sexism. I mean, in my mind, racism and sexism are, you know, really what, you know, came to the fore uh, in this this election so strongly. I mean, we've we've known that there's been this racist streak, uh, uh, you know, a backlash against Obama. But we all always kept saying, oh, we're better than that. We're better than that. And sexism, I mean, who didn't want to see, you know, their daughter look up to Hillary Clinton shattering that final glass ceiling? Well, a whole lot of people who want women to, you know, be in their place, which is subservient to men, which is not a race thing. Yeah. But it is an economic thing because a lot of women are heads of the households these days and are sometimes the, the breadwinner these days. That's the truth of it. So uh, I think that, and, you know, we used to talk about unions. We used to talk about the labor movement. John Perez, uh, for one, who was a labor uh, organizer, he, he became uh, the first openly gay speaker of the assembly. He used to talk about how a labor contract was a way for LGBT rights to be protected. Mm -hmm. Because even if you worked in Alabama, if you were under a labor contract, those protections. you couldn't be fired or you'd have a way to contest it, even in a state that, you know, allowed you to be fired for right. being gay. Right. So I, I still think that, that the economy is kind of the bridge uh, you know, the next step after good morning. <laughs> well, there's never enough time and when we, you're in the studio. We have to stop you there. We know we'll see you again soon. There's going to be so much more to talk about, and hopefully some of it will be hopeful. And 14% of the LGBT vote went to Trump. So we need to that take a look at ourselves crazy. as well. Well, and we heard that from Ch Charles Moran last week. That's that, right. That's what's going to happen. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for tonight. All right. Thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, our social media goddess, Miss Barbecue, board out Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. And a special thank you to Karen Oakham, who we've just been speaking with. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. We will close with a song that perfectly sums up what many of us have been feeling the last few days. From Music for Change, here's Gimme Shelter. Good night. Oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh yes, I'm gonna fade away.
my very life today if I don't get some 